welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. We're here for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Zach Shahan, CEO of Clean Technica. And today we're joined by two special guests, Erica Myers, Executive Director of Charan North America, and Ruben Sarkar, CEO of ACM, which is stands for American Center for Mobility. Of course, want to just sort of start with the background on who you are, how you got into the electric vehicle industry and the EV charging space in general, and then also how you came to your roles at Charan and ACM. So let's go ahead and start with, with Erica. How did you get into EVs and EV charging and then Charan? So yeah, I, I've been in the space for over 14 years at this point. I first learned about electric vehicles in my role as a clean cities coordinator. I know that a lot of folks out there started in the similar pathway. Uh, and so I really fell in love with the technology right from the beginning. And it's still you know something that I'm super passionate about. I've been working in lots of different roles, both from a government, for-profit, and think tank perspective, but I really love coming back to the association level because it's a chance for us to work really hand-in-hand with the industry to advance certain technologies. And so I joined Charan about a year and a half ago and have really been blown away by the enthusiasm and the passion for the subject matter within our membership the people who do this work every single day, the engineers who are on the ground building the equipment, doing, you know, investing and deploying charging infrastructure. We're all 100% committed to it. And it's really been great to see the interest in charging infrastructure at the highest levels of government, especially recently with the latest $5 billion investment in, in federal funds into this. So it's been great to see this kind of coalescence of you know, the people and the funding. There's a really critical good time for that as EV adoption has has increased and as um, the world is moving ahead, right? Ruben, same questions for you, just how you got into electric vehicles and EV charging in particular and your role as CEO of ACM. Yeah, so it's a good question. I mean, I actually got um, accidentally involved in EVs uh, when I was at General Motors. I used to be the transmission fluid engineer at General Motors when I started my career more than 25 years ago. And um, transmission fluids touch everything in the drivetrain. So eventually I got more involved in hardware release. The transmissions became the hybridized platforms. And eventually I took over as the lead engineer for the electric drive unit for the Chevy Volt. So from oil guy to electric guy during my time at, at GM. I left GM and then went on to some electric bus startups and then over to the U.S. Department of Energy where I oversaw the sustainable transportation sector And one of those offices was the Vehicle Technology Office in the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, which does all the electrification programs, right? So the battery development, the drivetrain development. So I oversaw that for a period at U.S. Department of Energy, uh, jumped back into the world of startups, doing some other uh, battery-related work, and and then came back to ACM. And ironically, ACM was the original General Motors site that I started my career at 25 years earlier but it had been turned into a proving ground for connected and automated vehicles. So that's what brought me back. And we're now getting into electric vehicle charging here at ACM. So kind of full circle to where I started my career. That's pretty wild. It makes you feel feel young again, I'm sure, to be back 
at uh, <laughs> in in the same place where you were starting all of this. That's pretty pretty fun. So yeah, so you guys reached out because you're you're partnering to establish industry leading EV charging and interoperability test bed. Could you tell us a little bit more about about what that is? What what's going on with that? Yeah, so Charin realized pretty early on that we needed more testing facilities to enable interoperability and conformance with the standards. If you think about the charging experience for the average consumer, there's a lot of magic that happens behind the scenes and you just expect it to work every single time. And when it doesn't work, there's a whole slew of questions. Well, you know, was it my car? Was it the infrastructure? Was it something else? And there's just a lot of unknowns for the average consumer and and frustration. So we want to make sure that the experience for the consumer is as good as, if not better than, their current gas station experience. And so in order to do that, we need to make sure that all the equipment that's in the fields, the charging hardware and software works with all the electric vehicles, including like the oldest legacy vehicles, right from the very beginning, the 2011 vehicles. So we need to make sure that all these vehicles work with all the charging infrastructure flawlessly. And in order to do that, it requires places where you can take your equipment and test it, you know, as many times as necessary in order to get it right. And so that's why we put out a call um, earlier this year, looking for partnerships with testing facilities across the country in order to create these sound testing environments for our members and and even non-members to make sure that what we ultimately have in North America is a fantastic charging experience. Yeah, I think we typically, we, we look at, we're like, okay, there's a standard that all the cars are using, all the stations are using, and don't necessarily realize how you still have to test all the different components, make sure they work with all these different vehicles. Now Nowadays, you're seeing so many, I see just everywhere I go, there are a handful of new EVs I see around me, of course, Teslas, but also like every other EV out there's there's just always a, f- a handful of new ones and then I'm still seeing the old Leafs and uh, I'm like you know I think the easiest thing to compare it to is if we have phones or computers where all of a sudden something stops working because it's older hardware that doesn't work with newer software or something you know I guess we we discount that that that's happening with EV chargers but I guess the problem has gotten is it's getting more and more advanced and and interesting, I I presume. You want to chime in on that as well, Ruben? Yes. As I mentioned earlier, we started off as a connected and automated vehicle test track. So not doing electric vehicle charging, but we had a 90 megawatt or remnant power station from the General Motors facility that was there. And so ever since I came, we have been eyeing that saying, well, we know that's a valuable asset for, for things like high power charging and the like. And we had also started to do some demonstration programs doing high power charging for things like the U.S. Department of Energy. And that's where the conversation started with some of the autos that says, you know, when we go and have to do this thing for interoperability, if I had to take my prototype car and plug it into a bunch of different charging, I have to drive to a major metropolitan area to do to go and do that. And so when you're in Detroit, if you have to go all the way to Washington, D.C., that's not really an effective way to, to do your development. And so we started to explore the need for having something in the heart metro Detroit area and started hearing resoundingly that, in fact, there was a need to have a one-stop shop place where people could come and do the work and to get access to all the different chargers and the latest and greatest software. And then coinciding with that, you have, you know, people talking about operability issues, whether chargers actually function properly, but a bigger issue is, is in some cases interoperability. Does, does every make and model of car work with every make and model of charger? And when you're constantly updating the software on both of those things, you're always going to have this potential fit issue. 
And so those things got us looking at it. Uh, we had already started to look at building a test facility to do this. And then we saw Charin's call for partnerships and we knew that they had the large member network organization. And so we, you know, we put forward the notion to them through their call to, to participate and work together. And that kind of led to, to where we are today. Yeah. So there is, as you mentioned, there's so much more funding for EV charging that's gone out from the Biden administration, from the bipartisan infrastructure law, from the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. This is like, this is what we've been begging for, for uh, 15 years <laughs> or so, at least uh, 10 years. And it's, it's finally, you know, really starting to roll out and, and the money is going to to help get this stuff built. How, how does that affect what you're doing? How, are there are there more requirements? Is it easier because there are certain requirements that everyone's already matching up with from the from the U.S. government, or you know, for funding for for this this funding and that that kind of thing? Or is it a case of you're sort of figuring everything out as you go with with the people implementing the, the, these policies? How is that connected to what you're doing? Well, at the, the highest level. I think that the federal government is absolutely invested in making sure that the infrastructure that's deployed will work for many, many, many years. And that, again, it's that flawless charging experience for the consumer. So they're very invested in making sure all of the equipment is compliant with certain standards, including standards that are relatively new for our industry. So, for example, there's a requirement starting next year that the charging hardware can support plug-in charge, which is um, an element of an ISO 15118 communication protocol, which enables a really easy charge experience. You basically just plug in and it automatically will, will bill your, your payment that's within your car. So it's going to be like a very good seamless experience. You don't necessarily have to worry about having a credit card or an RFID for a particular charging network. So that is an that is an example of something that's a newer feature in the field and where we need some additional testing. So Ruben, like <laughs> you can talk about your angle there. Great uh, lead in. Yeah. So I think the the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure or NEVI um, funds do reference interoperability standards in there. They don't necessarily call for a strict regulatory compliance, right? But they're but they're referenced in there. And as a follow-on to that, because they are deploying, then you saw the formation of the Joint Office for Energy and Transportation between the U.S. Department of Energy and the U.S. Department of Transportation, which then started to put out a call for their grant to support additional development of facilities, like for the testing of, of these standards, right? So I think they, they understand the need and that they're actually moving forward with funding to try to support more testing and compliance. And, you know, jointly, you know, Charan and ACM also have applied for those those additional funds to build out our efforts even further. And they do spell out in a little more detail, like different standards and what the expectations are that they're trying to, to test to. But they've also acknowledged that there needs to be kind of a, a refinement over time, right? Like working together to understand how those needs are going to evolve. And so I think it's a it's a living process, right? And that they're 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 putting some money behind, you know, the compliance piece of this. Yeah. Plug and charge was going to be my next or second the next uh, topic of questioning because it is just when you look at mass market EV adoption, I just I see it as a critical feature. I think it's been it's been okay up to this point. People learning to charge on different networks and plug in and unplug. But I mean, every it seems like often when I'm at a charging station, someone needs help figuring out how to do it, and we need an easy system. You plug in, you charge, 
you have it, it builds automatically. We did a webinar with Hubject in, about plug and charge three years ago, 2019, and you know it was it's great to see it progressing. It's it's getting there. But what can you say about how it's been developing and how it's how it's been growing and, and rolling out and and where you see it in the next five years for by by 2030 we could even say like do you see it as being ubiquitous as you know or or what yeah so definitely we want this to be a ubiquitous experience we don't want some you know oem drivers uh, of certain brand models to have access to some of it and then some others so we've, we've been doing a lot in the way of education and outreach to our membership and beyond to encourage them to integrate plug and charge capabilities into their equipment and can you um, just reiterate who are you who is your membership sorry yeah Tarin. <laughs> Tarin is a, a global trade association. We have members all around the world. We're actually based out of Europe, but I'm based here in North America. And we are member our membership comprises the entire EV value chain. So that includes all the manufacturers of electric vehicles, the charging hardware manufacturers, the charge point operators, the MSPs, the IT, the software developers that go into the infrastructure. So literally all up and down the, the chain, including even bulk power operators. So, so grid management or utilities are also part of our membership. So we, we do try to be as inclusive as possible with everyone that has a stake in the ground in the EV in industry so that they can all participate equally in the development and refinement of standards. So we are not a standards development organization, but we are focused on creating alignment and accelerating the pace of standards developments in our industry, which those typically take some time. So if you can do this in a, you know, in a place like Charin um, to work out some of the, the kinks beforehand, then you can, in fact, have a, a bigger impact during the standards process. And, and do you find widespread acceptance and adoption of the plug and charge standard now or are you so we have great success stories like europe where you you see it everywhere so charin created a label for the plug and charge uh like a logo that anybody can use um, you can download the files off our website and you can offer it you know put the label on your charge point location and that gives the consumer a chance to understand like that one is something that i can use with my compatible vehicle so we are seeing widespread adoption and consumers are very happy with that charging experience in Europe. We we want that same experience in North America. And as far as automakers, I mean, they're all moving toward it, right? I mean, is, are, or is there some, are there some holdouts? No, I think it, by and large, the automakers see this as a benefit. There are some things that we need to work out. So there's still some little kinks here and there in the deployment of plug and charge. So that's another thing that Charm has been spending a lot of time on is getting past these final issues so that we can do full-scale deployment. I feel like Ruben would have a lot of stories on that kind of thing, right? The, when you get really into the internals of the equipment, differences in how different company, different automakers want to go about it, or is that sort of what, what we're talking about? Not necessarily how they're integrating the information because that's pretty well defined as part of the standard ISO 15118. It's more of how you do certificate handling. So plug and charge, just like any other payment system, has a lot of 
security features to it, including things like encryption for your payment so that nobody can steal your information. And so as part of that, there's like certificate handling rules that need to be further refined. Um, we have a lot of new market entrants of people who want to offer these certificates. And right now we need a better way of figuring out how the vehicle can identify them if they're coming from different sources. Ruben, do you have anything to add on the development and growth of plug-in charge or move on to the next? Yeah, you can move on to the next. I think Erica and Charin are closer to that that issue in the, you know, the consumer yeah. side interface for the OEMs. We provide the test bed yeah. right, where you can come in and, and verify that there are no issues. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. If you enjoy cleantech talk and cleantechnica, please consider pitching in a few dollars a month at cleantechnica.com slash support. That's cleantechnica.com slash support, where you can sign up in seconds with a credit card, pitch in a few dollars a month or whatever you like. Some people actually contribute $100 a month to help us cover climate change and clean tech and try to help the world one word at a time. Thank you. Well, you know, the elephant in the room right now is obviously the North American charging standard, Tesla's charging standard. And, you know, initially, I think when it was introduced, a lot of people thought it was not a not note that notable, I think, because it was like, you know, it was Tesla was renaming its supercharging kind of uh, standard is sort of how it was seen. It had opened up, you know, the option of other automakers could use superchargers years ago if they contributed to the funding and and made cars that were compatible. And I, I think early takes were like, oh, this is Tesla trying to get some of the government funding by having an open standard with a different name in North American charging standard. As we've seen, like almost every automaker has now said they're going to build vehicles with NACS as a priority. What is your take on it? What is your take on, you know, going back to the, what I just talked about, the history of it, and just how there's been from forward onward, a kind of a, a huge shift in automakers saying they're going to design EVs with this as the, the base charging standard and have adapters for CCS in, in North America, at least right now. So that's a big question. So let me start from the beginning. From Charin's perspective, we take a non-discriminatory approach to EV charging technologies and standards. So we believe multiple charging standards can coexist through interoperability as the market matures. And we are very excited to see that the North America charging standard was integrated into the SAE standards development process a few months ago, um, known as SAE J3400. And for us, it's very critical that anything that is done is open and interoperable with all the other standards so that you can have good market competition and that people can build on this and, and continue to expand and improve the charging experience. Our members consist of both entities that will be using NACS as well as CCS. So we think CCS will continue to operate in, in the US. It's unclear, you know, we might see a lot of charging ports with either NACS or CCS or both will have handle, you know, maybe with a dual cord, you'll have both handles. What we are very concerned about is adapter safety. And so Charin is in the process of developing and refining our position on adapters, which our position previously has been no adapters, but because we think that that's a poor consumer experience, you can lose the adapters, they're expensive. 
If they're not manufactured properly, they can actually represent a major safety hazard for the consumer. So we want to make sure that whatever adapters are being used in this interim period are, are safe and affordable. Yeah, it seems like for the foreseeable future, all the new EVs next year, will most of them will have adapters for using the NACs. So like your you're saying NACS is always difficult. I'm used to writing it. You know, I, I write it more than I say it. NACs is a good good way to say it. So, and then after that, it'll shift to, to more using adapters to use CCS stations, which will still be abundant. A lot of them, I mean, a lot of CCS ports. So I imagine that for the next several years, adapters will be very common. I use with my Model 3 a, you know, an adapter to use a charge point station or whatever, like a, mm-hmm. which is not a big deal, but it's definitely, I'd rather not have to use an adapter. And of course, there's always the risk of leaving it, you know, forgetting it, losing it. Just to close this topic, I'm, you know, I'm curious what you both think as far as, you know, where we are in 10 years. All right. In 10 years, do you see all electric vehicles having the same, the same standard port? And most of the charging, new charging infrastructure going in, prioritizing one standard, or do you think in ten years we'll continue to have sort of you know these dual approaches, or or sometimes in some cases maybe more than two, but probably you know dual approaches to to both the ports being put in cars and the charging stations being being built put into the into the ground. Uh, it just seems from a consumer angle, as you were saying, Ruben. Just be nice to have everything just the same where you don't think about it. It was not, you don't even think about it. Just every car is going to have the same ports. Every station will have the same new plugs and everything will hopefully be plug and charge or maybe even wireless, right? I can take a first stab at that and then uh, Erica can chime in. In my opinion, it, it takes a little time to turn the fleet over, right? So 10 years will go by pretty quick. I think we're going to have a, a mixed bag for a little bit longer than that, say maybe 15 years. But eventually, I think you'll get down to um, uh, where regionally more common, you know, common plugs, right? You want to differentiate based on the car, in my opinion. And the reason we have this differentiation now is that some people started sooner, right? And wanted, you know, Tesla wanted to build out their own infrastructure. And uh, so I think eventually it will smooth itself out. Um, where there may be a difference is when you start to get into more extreme charging and people offering, you know, premium level of things that that might involve some differentiation in engineering and the like, right? But still, even then, people are probably going to try to get some standards around around that. So I think it'll eventually get into a a little more consistency, uh, but I think it'll take longer than 10 years, in my opinion. And I'll just say that we feel char and collaboration is incredibly important. And so whatever the standard ends up being, if we do get to one charging standard, that the goal is to help it improve the user experience, the reliability, and the safety, while also reducing the market complexity, eliminating consumer confusion, and accelerating EV adoption. So from Charan's perspective, again, we're technology neutral and non-discriminatory and inclusive. So whatever that ultimate outcome is, we support it, and we're here to accelerate the adoption of it. Sounds great. Yeah. So just two final topics I wanted to get to. One is wireless charging, which I just mentioned. We've seen recently covered 150 kilowatt wireless charging that's going in in Japan. They're testing in Japan at different traffic lights where you can add, uh, I think it was six kilometers in a in a in a minute. Yeah. And so 60 kilometers in 10 minutes, wireless charging at at 
popular traffic uh, lights in Japan. So sort of a testing phase. I mean, naturally, the easy, you know, convenience often wins in the market, especially the US market. And there's nothing th- seemingly more convenient than just your car charging whenever you pull into your garage or into a parking space at a grocery store or perhaps even at a common at a traffic light. But, you know, years ago, it's like, oh, this will never be efficient enough. This is never going to be fast enough. It seems like a lot has changed. What's your perspective on where wireless charging is right now with EVs and 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 how much of your testing and and development is around wireless charging now going or going to be around it? So I can talk about Charin's perspective. So we actually just launched a wireless power transfer task force in September with the goal to enable seamless wireless charging solutions for all types of EVs, not just light duty. We'll start out with focusing on the 11 kilowatt charging systems, which are, of course, the the low power, and then eventually moving up to the high power charging options. We think, again, standardization of technology will help accelerate and improve competition. Right now, a lot of what is available today is, is proprietary, especially for high power. So the more we can standardize that, the better. It is There is questions about the efficiency, but I, I do believe just like everything else we've seen in our industry with certain tweaks and adjustments and inv- investments that we could see that efficiency improvement necessary. Maybe my it's more of my personal viewpoint because we haven't seen a lot of testing of wireless charging at places like ACM. Uh, we have been involved in wireless charging programs and demonstrations. Did a lot of work when I was at Department of Energy developing high power static, high power dynamic type systems, and have even worked with it in places like the transit industry. I think if you if you first break it into two pieces, there is some you know there is some research out there and some anecdotal information that suggests that. You know, the gas station filling experience isn't a positive one for a large percentage of the population. So charging at home is, is an improvement. And then once you're able to just pull in your garage and get out of the car and it charges, once people have that, if they can do it affordably, people might not go back the other way. Right. So there, there's some information out there that suggests if you can, you know, integrate these into vehicles cost effectively and so forth and, and people have it, they'll use it. Now, when you start to put it out into the road infrastructure, it poses a different set of questions. You can do the math to show things like dynamic wireless charging, if we could put it everywhere, would, would be you know great in terms of reducing the, the size of batteries. But our ability to build that sort of infrastructure, right, when when batteries themselves are improving, it makes it harder to think that you're going to get to that far far end game. And so somewhere in the middle are are these, you know, uh, high power stationary wireless chargers that go into cities. And I think in the U.S., you're going to see that going into transit applications and other areas where there's repeat route and there's some advantages of launch assist and others. I personally don't think you're going to see it ubiquitously in the near term, you know, being built out as a way to reduce the size of batteries on cars. There's also maintenance and repair issues. I don't know how those get get into play, play in those different scenarios. It is funny, you know, charging at home, it takes like people ask how long it takes to charge. Uh, my, one of my favorite responses that I picked up from readers was about five seconds. It takes me about two and a half seconds to plug in, about two and, a, two and a half seconds to unplug. So it's already so easy. It's just, we're such addicts for more convenience. It's like people will, you know, people will buy wireless chargers so they don't have to plug and unplug. And there are cases where you forget to plug in and you're like, oh no, I forgot to plug in. It's not normally a crisis, but you know, it, it, you can see why that would be a popular thing. So the last question is about those like higher power 
uh, kind of special feature charging a little bit. I'm just curious uh, to ask a little bit about that as well. There is this company, Li Auto in China, a very um, sort of popular new EV startup. And they've got this Li Mega coming out. It looks like sort of like a shiny extended cyber van kind of thing. Very large. They produce like Escalades, like three different models of Escalade size electric vehicles. But this Li Mega is has uh, 552 ki- kilowatt charging capability. And even at like 80%, it was still at 350 kilowatt charging capability. Some crazy numbers, crazy op- uh, figures and features. I'm curious, just again, your both of your takes on where we're going with that kind of like very high power, very fast charging. And are you anticipating testing more more of that kind of thing as well? Do you see it as kind of just a special feature that goes into like luxury class special, you know, special EVs, you know, like the Taycan, that, that, that kind of class? Or do you think that's just where the market will head down the road as everything improves? I mean, yeah, I'm just curious, both of your takes since you're technical experts. We can start with Ruben this time, maybe, and then wrap up with Erica. Yeah. So I, I think the answer is we're going to increasingly see the desire to push more power into vehicles for battery charging over time. Right? Uh, I think because batteries are getting bigger in some cases, right, in some of these vehicles, and you need more power to, to achieve that. You know, 350 kilowatt, I think, is the is the first entree, extreme fast charging. But, you know, the reason I was interested in EV charging for ACM is that we had this infrastructure. We knew people were going to be wanting to do higher power charging, particularly for the larger size vehicles. Whether or not the battery technologies, all the good considerations and the costs associated with that are going to, in the near term, lead to high power charging for everybody in light duty, I think that's debatable. You may actually get a bifurcation in the market, the cheap and cheerful car that slow charges but is affordable, the premium segment car that can take a you know 350 kilowatt or greater type charging. I think 350 kilowatts like a like an entry point there. So I think it's, it's still yet to be determined, but I do think that there are going to be certain market segments that will be seeking the higher power charging. But I don't think you're going to see it near term with the battery capabilities that we have and the cost associated with that to be in every make and model of, of light duty passenger car. And I agree. I, I think the high power charging at those extreme levels is there's a cost benefit associated with that, the detriment to your battery pack, the additional costs you might incur as a consumer on your demand charges. So your your rates, utility rates are an important consideration. Sitar and, and, and many others have supported the development of the megawatt charging system, which I think speaks a little bit more to your question as it relates to the standards so there's um, concurrent uh, standardization of the megawatt charging system across the world. And we expect to see the first official standards uh, publications for, for MCS starting next year. And where we're seeing a lot of interest is actually off-road. So in addition to the Class 8 trucks, which have like a very strong business case for fast charging, also, mining, marine, aviation, we're getting a lot of interest from these new sectors that haven't previously been as engaged in the on-road discussions, but that see this as an opportunity for them to electrify. So when we think about this from a global perspective, we need to decarbonize all forms of transportation, including off-road. And so this is a great way to do it. I think beforehand, when we had only the the lower high power, then it became a lot more difficult to make it work with some pieces of equipment that that really require significant charging in a very short amount of time. 
Yeah, one of our recent episodes here on Cleantech Talk was with the head of Skanska North America, who's testing the largest electric excavator in the world in LA. We're going to work on a extension of the metro line there from Volvo. So I imagine that's one of those kinds of vehicles that you're. That I'm, I was waiting to see if you were going to mention that as well, but absolutely. Uh, there's yeah. so much of this is fun and exciting. It's sort of like we barely catch it, and that's what we do. So, <laughs> so it's very cool to see. And I assume buses as well. You're you're thinking about for use of that kind of mega charge. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, fascinating discussion. I think I was going to say that's about it, but I'm I'm curious too. There's so much with electric school buses and vehicle to grid with school buses, and there's just so much opportunity there, especially if you look at the summertime. But uh, it's just. Uh, one of my favorite topics in clean tech. So I'm curious if you are specifically looking to work on that more as well with this new testing facility and with what you're doing, like advancing the the electric school bus charging and vehicle to grid capabilities. Yeah, maybe not specifically, but let, let me uh, let me maybe elaborate a little bit about where the testing might go, and then to bring it back to point on the partnership with with Charin. So this first foray is into you know interoperability issues from the vehicle to the charger, because we want to improve that experience and work together to kind of address those issues. We're also seeing a a trend towards then higher power, right? As we get into larger vehicles and the like, so we anticipate that. And then eventually we are gonna be doing vehicle to grid type work, right? So we're envisioning our test bed and our work to start to expand into other areas, could include microgrids, um, you know, the, the distributed energy or dispatchable energy resources, right? So how the, charging infrastructure ecosystem will eventually evolve because we know it's going to be more than just the standalone charger. It's going to be owning a, a bigger piece of the grid side uh, infrastructure. And the OEMs from what we understand it are, are also interested in that, that grid side component as well in terms of, of, of the charging uh, infrastructure. So it'll eventually go there. Now, we don't have anything specifically for school buses, but during my time at DOE, I became more convinced when people started presenting the school bus concept back that there was potentially a business case there, right, to do it. So we'd certainly be open and willing to have uh, groups come in and do demonstrations or testing and validation of vehicle to grid with school bus fleets or, or other you know fleet applications. So, and then just one last, just quick thing I'd add is that you know the the partnership with Charin it brings our our test environments, which can be shaped based on the input that we get from industry, right. And the reason we wanted to partner with Charin is that they have the member network, the experience and the input to say, what does this test bed need to be to help them achieve their outcome? So it's kind of a process of working together to figure out what that end game is going to look like. And so that's why we value this partnership so much. Yeah, Charin is one of the big names in the business. So when you see somebody from Charin, you pay attention. So <laughs> Erica, do you have any final comments on that, on this electric school bus standards or development? So we're really excited every time we see a school bus coming to one of our testing events because we know that the industry is a little further behind the rest of the on-road when it comes to interoperability testing um, since it's such a new industry um, and it's really, really grown rapidly in the last few years, a large part because of the interest from the, the funding offered by the EPA, which provides grants at no cost to the, to the school districts to purchase electric school bus, which is fantastic. So the opportunity to leverage these as grid assets is, is very profound for some of these communities, especially that have difficulties with resilience of their grid systems. So if you could, you know, if you think about where you might see a lot of emergency shelters typically happen in schools. 
So it'd be great if you could tie some of these, these battery assets to providing power during emergency situations. And so I know a great school program focused on this at the World Resources Institute, their electric school bus initiative, which has been doing a lot of research on vehicle grid integration and has been a supporter for Charin on helping bring in some of their school bus OEMs to our testing events. So shout out to them and definitely encourage you to look into some of their work. Uh, we're also really excited to be working with ACM on this, this new test bed. And I think it's going to be incredibly important as we continue to move forward with the, the maturation of this uh, electric vehicle charging industry, which we need to, of course, make sure that is as robust and easy to use as possible for the consumer. So from that perspective, we're really excited that we're working with Ruben and his team. And yeah, I think it's going to be a great partnership for many years. Yeah, as a Floridian, it is a great point that the schools are often shelters that when hurricanes come by, which is pretty often. And uh, it's, it would be great to have electric school buses with great backup capability there. Uh, and overall, your point, the electric school bus market is really rising all, suddenly because of policy, because of funding from the, the EPA and the EV charging networks are growing. The, the standards are getting better. We, we didn't touch on, you know, the reliability requirements of NEVI being quite strong to help it improve reliability. But yeah. all of this is happening because of great policies that have been put in place. Policy matters. So I think keep that in mind. But uh, thanks a lot for what you're doing. Appreciate uh, your work and just appreciate getting to pick the brains of a couple of real experts in this field about technical matters and, and trends in the industry. So thank you. Yeah, thank you guys so much for including us. Have a good day. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.